0: The Guardian.
1: There have been some incredible science stories in 2020, from the SpaceX launch, the first private vehicle to deliver astronauts to the International Space Station, to the discovery of phosphine, a potential indicator for the presence of life on Venus. But the biggest story of the year has undoubtedly been COVID-19, Here on Science Weekly, we've been covering Covid-19 since our first podcast on it in January, trying to uncover all the science we can, from how the virus spreads to how you make a vaccine for it.
2: The new
1: virus has been
3: identified in Wuhan.
2: People suspected that it had come from animals and got into humans. Covid-19
0: is spreading from person to person, And a lot of people are really anxious about whether to touch door handles or even shake hands.
4: Now, less than a year later,
1: vaccines have been developed against COVID-19, with some already approved and being used in vaccination programmes. At the end of this challenging, difficult year, we've decided, over two episodes, to look back at what has happened in the past 12 months. I was furious, livid, just to see
3: somebody... With Covid, get in a, a car and drive however <laughs> many hundred miles north to an area which at that point did not have a lot of Covid.
1: I'm Madeleine Finlay, one of the producers of Science Weekly, and you're listening to the first part of our review of 2020. Buckle in. To take us through some of the most important scientific moments of the year, I got The Guardian's science editor, Ian Sample, and health editor, Sarah Bosley, on the line. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing? Hello.
0: I'm all right, thank you. I'm just doing back-to-back podcasts.
1: (laughs) And Ian's on the line. Ian, thank you for joining us.
2: Hi. No problem at all. Good to see you.
1: Now, Ian and Sarah, to go over some of the key points of the year, last week you actually both spoke to John Jury, a professor of social psychology at the University of Sussex and a member of the Independent Scientific Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviours, or SPY-B, and they've been advising the government throughout the pandemic, as well as Christina Pargel, a Professor of Operational Research at University College London, and a member of IndySage, a group of scientists providing independent scientific advice to the government. And we'll be hearing some of that conversation throughout this episode. But first, Sarah, let's set the scene. I want to start with your perspective. There's evidence to suggest that the virus emerged in Wuhan around early to mid-December, but when did it first appear on your radar?
0: Well, because my beat is really global health, I actually wrote my first story on the 9th of January when the WHO said, we've got a, a nasty virus in China. And so at that point, even, I remember Jeremy Farrer at the Wellcome Trust was saying this actually could be nasty because they were already pinpointing the Wuhan animal market, the live animal market. And we know very well that that's how pandemics begin, you know, from animals into humans. But, you know, I can't for a minute say that right back then I thought this was going to be uh, the pandemic it's become. I have covered pandemics, and I covered Ebola in West Africa, for instance. And the sense is that it's a horrendous thing, but actually nowhere near you yeah, most of the time. I think I first realised it was going to be big, though, when I interviewed Gabriel Lung, uh, who's the chair of public health medicine at Hong Kong University, who was passing through London. And he and I had coffee in early February, And he was saying, this is huge, it's going to be big. He was saying it could spread to about two thirds of the world's population if we don't do anything about it. And that was so huge, such an enormous thing to say that I actually went back to the office and said, I'm I'm not sure we can print this. (laughs) Um, But we did. We wrote the story and I'm very glad we did because he was absolutely right.
1: Certainly, one of my defining moments from that time was this sense of growing dread as we began to see the virus make its way out of China. And one route we saw it travelling around the world was via cruise ships. So I got on the phone to Eleanor Riley, a professor of immunology and infectious disease at the University of Edinburgh, who we've spoken to on this podcast before and who happened to be on a cruise ship at that time. So I asked her when she remembered first coming across COVID-19.
4: I first heard about it, I think, probably sometime in January. I was actually... Away on holiday, end of January, beginning of February, on a cruise ship um, in the Arctic. And uh, that was the time when there were cruise ships parked all over the world with people not being allowed off. And and we did get a little bit nervous and were looking very sceptically at our fellow passengers, thinking, are we about to be the next group? But I think what struck me at the time, we were so wrapped up in other things like Brexit and whatever, that it seemed to me that we weren't taking it seriously enough. I now know that there were groups of scientists around the UK, the modelers, the vaccine developers in Oxford and well, who were taking it very, very seriously. But there was remarkably little alarm. There was a lot of press coverage, but it looked as though it's something over there in China. It's really not going to affect us. By the middle of March, the Medical Research Council had set up a, um, a panel to rapidly review research grant applications on COVID. And I think that was when we knew this is it. This is the big one. And I remember sitting having dinner with a group of my colleagues. Um, (laughs) We rather jokingly called it the Last Supper. And in fact, it was the Last Supper Mm -hmm. because I haven't seen any of those people since. And that was in the middle of March.
1: It's interesting hearing that even for somebody like Eleanor, SARS-CoV-2 felt very distant for quite some time. But as we came towards March and the UK's lockdown, we were looking towards Italy and the challenges that they were going through with the disease and starting to wonder whether that was about to be us And Ian, this realisation is something that you asked Christina Pagel and John Jury about.
2: A good place to start might be to just get you all to share your brief thoughts on how you first became really aware of what was about to happen in 2020. When did you think that this was actually going to be big? Can you remember the moment?
3: In mid-February because I, I, I went because someone asked me this other day, and I actually went back and looked at my whatsapps because I had this idea that I was a kind of a sage and that I knew it was coming and I was worried from the beginning of January onwards and I went back to my whatsapps and that just isn't true that I was actually even in mid-February kind of being oh I'll probably be all right and it wasn't until the end of February when it got to Italy that I was just like okay this is a real this is going to be really bad and I, I remember saying to a friend that like it was either the end of February beginning of March I said like well either in six months time the whole world's going to be different or everything's going to be the same and well I guess we know <laughs> which one it was but even then even when we locked down in March I didn't think it would probably now be a year before I go back to the office.
5: I remember in March we were on strike at my university and many universities across the country and I got an email from the SAGE secretariat inviting me to be part of the spyb b uh, subgroup and I didn't actually respond properly to it because I was on strike. And then when we went back to work the next week, the university was following the government guidance, but I and others in the union were concerned that it wasn't enough. The guidance wasn't telling us to go home. So I remember that being the first time I realised how big it was going to become.
2: And Christina and John, I don't know, you know, there's a difference between having a sense that this is going to be a a really big thing and then actually ending up working on it and it probably taking over quite a lot of your working working hours and life hours. I'm wondering, did you start working on this yourselves? Did you have particular questions in mind that you thought, okay, we have to understand X, Y, or Z? I'm just trying to get a sense of what was on your mind to actually try and understand in those early days.
3: All of my projects are working really closely with doctors, mainly intensive care doctors, as it happens. I do a lot of work in paediatric intensive care. And so when the pandemic hit, they were already starting to kind of change their services around. And basically, very early on, I think, you know, by the 20th of March, we started having conversations with our funders and saying, look, can we pause our projects, which is what we did. And then we started working on COVID, thinking, how can I support the people I work with, you know, my colleagues and and other hospitals, and I got asked to join independent sage at the beginning of May which I thought would be literally one two hour meeting and that's what I thought I signed up for and then gradually it has taken over my life
2: and john did you turn to work on this particularly yes well there's, there's
5: two in two ways the first was when the request from the government came for us to all stay at home I realised that the response was going to be very strongly dependent upon what people do in their communities. It's down to us. It's left to us, right? So that put a lot of onus on what have become known as mutual aid groups, community support groups. So then I developed a programme of work looking at what sustains those groups because there's a lot of work in disasters on the way that so-called altruistic communities, disaster communities, rise in emergencies but they also decline over time they run out of steam they get burnt out but the second thing was as soon as the strike finished I was just plunged into this spot all this spy b stuff which meant reading tons of documents all the time attending meetings and then the particular kind of question that people like me in spy b were addressing was to do with public adherence you know what determines public adherence how can we help people to adhere to these new guidelines and so on And, and that you know, continues today, are trying to answer that question.
3: And I wish, I mean, to be honest, like hearing John talk, I wish I'd known him then, because I felt like the academics around me were forming our own kind of disaster community. And I felt like we were working so hard every day, you know, all the way through Easter, everything. And I'm not sure what we achieved looking back, it just felt such a panic thing. Everyone wanted to help, everyone was willing to do anything it took, but we didn't quite know
1: what was the best thing. It's interesting listening to that because I know that on the podcast we really felt this sense of not knowing and being really keen to help in any way we could. I mean, at the time we asked for listener questions and were amazed with how many people wrote in looking for clarity and answers on what was happening wanting to know what they should do and what they shouldn't do, and just trying to get a handle on this thing that had entirely disrupted everybody's lives. And of course, was also making many people very sick. And it became pretty obvious to us that we needed to try and get scientists to say what we did and didn't know, at that point in time. And Sarah, I know that one of the early podcasts you did with us, which was really popular, was about the virus surviving outside the body. What's your perspective on that initial scramble for information? Well, interestingly
0: enough, uh, a lot of the information that we had came from the Chinese scientists. They had this massive outbreak in Wuhan and uh, they were quite well equipped actually to research it and produced an awful lot of scientific papers. So, the information certainly that we had in February and March was mostly from that outbreak. Um, so, that podcast we did with Dean Impille, who's um, a uh, virologist at the University College London, that was March. He was saying that this virus would last for about 48 to 72 hours outside the body and not much longer than that. But there were a lot of concerns. People were really panicking that they could pick it up on their hands and and put their hands into their mouths and get infected and become very ill. Um, there certainly has always been the risk of touch and that's why hygiene has been so very
2: important.
1: And Ian, another transmission route was through the expulsion of droplets. Tell me a bit about that.
2: Well, I think early on there were some assumptions and very sensible assumptions that because this virus was so genetically similar to SARS the virus that caused an epidemic back in 2003 that it would spread pretty much the similar similar ways which you know via droplets from people's exhaled breath and you know the sort of saliva if you like and and um, potentially also things called fomites which is basically a sort of scientific term for any sort of contaminated surface so If you um, have the virus on your saliva and that ends up getting on doorknobs or on tables or on cups and mugs and glasses and things like that. And it was really pretty well backed up by the observational data, which was coming out of of China, obviously, uh, very early on, showing that, you know, people in houses were spreading it among themselves very rapidly. People who were in clubs and workplaces were spreading it to each other. And it was clear that it was that sort of close contact where those kinds of um, airborne droplets and contaminated surfaces, you know probably predominantly the airborne droplets were um were a problem
1: alongside this, I do remember questions about aerosol particles carrying the virus, tiny particles that can stay up in the air for a reasonably significant amount of time, which of course changes the prevention strategies you need and Again, the role of ventilation was something that we covered in the podcast. But related to that, Zara is the role of masks in preventing the spread of COVID-19, which became a real focus for debate in many Western countries, including ours, didn't it?
0: This really became a very hot issue and it's extraordinary that really, the UK and other countries hung back and didn't adopt masks. But if you look at it, the evidence is pretty circumstantial. It's very, very difficult to do studies showing that uh, masks prevent infection because you have to risk people becoming infected. Really, the evidence has been um, from countries that actually use them all the time, places like Japan and uh, Taiwan and other places in the Far East that have had experience of SARS, so they know how horrible respiratory viruses can be. And they have a a habit of wearing them. They actually wear them for the common good. So that was completely foreign to the UK, and it took a very long time for it to catch on.
1: Sarah, one thing that I couldn't understand was why wouldn't we encourage mask wearing You know, apart from the environmental costs, it seemed like such an easy thing to do and worth it if it even had the slightest chance of making a difference. So why did we hold back early on?
0: I was quite influenced by what the World Health Organization was saying at this point, and they were not, at the beginning, endorsing masks. I think they were really worried that that the rich countries would buy up the supply of masks um, around the world. And obviously it was the nurses and the doctors, other healthcare staff who really badly needed masks. And there were also worries that they would be wrongly used because if you wear a mask and you're in an infectious environment, you may collect a load of virus on the outside of the mask from people breathing on you. And then of course, when you take the mask off, it could get over your hands. Then you, your hands go to your mouth. And uh, of course, you could possibly get infected in that way. So it wasn't a simple issue ever.
1: Ian, this challenge to get some clarity early on about what was going on wasn't just with the virus itself, but also the UK government's response to it. Let's talk about that. I mean, right from the beginning, it appeared as if there was mixed messaging going on as to the severity of the virus. What was your impression?
2: So I think the messaging at the start around our strategy for dealing with this epidemic was uh, confused and inconsistent and probably not particularly clear to very many people. And I think it says something that very many months into this pandemic, journalists were still asking government advisers what the strategy is and whether the strategy had changed because it just wasn't clear. I don't think people knew whether we were trying to eradicate it uh, to drive cases down to zero or whether just to understand that certain of us among us were going to take it on the chin. Perhaps some of that is forgivable in that your strategy must be influenced and be determined by, you know, the features of the virus. And and a lot of that stuff was unclear early on. But the the actual, what the message was and what the strategy was, was just I think, desperately unclear.
1: This is also something that you asked John Jury about.
2: As we saw the cases come into the UK, we saw them rising. There was this moment, and I forget exactly when it was, where Boris Johnson made this famous comment about shaking everybody's hands. Um, was that a big problem?
5: Well, I think we know now that that was a disastrous thing to say, because the people he was shaking said he was shaking hands with were people in a hospital who had the virus, right? And we know from lots of work in different areas of psychology that the example of leaders or the example of people in our group matter. Now, in those early days, there was a rise in a kind of sense of national unity and even people that didn't like the Tories, didn't like the government, were willing to give them a chance and to feel that we should be coming together. And in that situation, Someone like him who stands for the government, stands for the nation, in a sense, to be so blasé and casual and to be so flippant about uh, the rules that they were telling us to live by was quite silly and quite damaging.
2: John, what did you make of the, the public messaging then around how we as a society should have behaved?
5: If you look at some of the original messaging, it was about keeping yourself safe and the problem with that is it focuses on the individual. Now, if you're somebody who's young and fit, you probably know that you're not the one who is likely to suffer from the virus. So therefore, you can discount this message and you can carry on in your merry way. So that messaging wasn't uh, very helpful. I mean, there's a lot of work in health psychology showing that that individualistic kind of message is not does not you know cut through. Uh, but then you know there was an obvious change in that the messaging changed to, we you know, say the NHS, but it's also you know, I do this for others. I do it for my neighbours. I do it for my family. I do it for strangers. And they're still using that messaging today. And there's evidence that that messaging is more effective.
0: I think it's quite interesting that we were not, I would say, not properly public health led at the early stage of this pandemic. The messages weren't coming out loud and clear and we weren't being directed by somebody at the top of public health England or any public health body. It was the politicians instead. Now, somebody said to me, actually, it was Bruce Elwood from WHO, said that the countries that did well treated it as a virus. That was the problem, whereas we treated it as a disease. If you treat the problem as being a virus, then you are actually going to to take all the public health measures you need to check the spread of that virus. So that means that you work hard on hygiene, you work hard on testing people, finding out who's got it, isolating them, all of those things. Whereas I think the UK had a disease response and that meant treating people once they were infected. So you're testing to find out who's got it. Uh, That's what happened at the beginning. It was testing people in hospital in order to work out how to treat them.
3: Yeah, I actually think that that's a really interesting insight because even in the first wave, the whole emphasis on the response was protect the NHS, which is actually really far downstream. And you don't really want to be intervening at, at the stage where you have a lot of people in hospital. You want to be preventing it right from the beginning. And we never really had that prevention strategy. It was just a, let's hope we've got enough ICU
1: beds. Coming off the back of Christina's comments on the government strategy, this is an issue that I want to dig into a little more. Ian, for a while, there was this sort of idea floating about that we were going to go down the herd immunity route.
2: Well, the weird thing with the herd immunity strategy is that it's, it's incredibly appealing as, a, as an idea if you don't inspect it too closely. Because what you're saying is, look... Most deaths by far are in older people and older people with existing conditions. So just identify those people, make sure they're safe. The rest of us can get the virus and we'll have some immunity. And that then, you know, does the the nation a service because we've helped build up the sort of you know the herd immunity that protects these other people, the more vulnerable people when you release them. But what you really have to do is make sure all the vulnerable people are shielded and the problem is we didn't know who was vulnerable apart from yes the older people the people with comorbidities they're not the only ones and also a lot of those people are completely embedded in the community they're not all in care homes and so the practicalities of it mean that it doesn't work and we totally messed up because we did nothing early on to protect the care homes and that's why half of our deaths in the first wave of this this epidemic were in care homes you had staff moving from care home to care home you had people with coronavirus being discharged from hospitals who still would still have tested positive being discharged from hospitals back into care homes and no testing of, of any great volume at all at care homes um, so a, a, a multiple failure and a pretty scandalous one I have to say
1: Another of the biggest scandals of the year was, of course, Dominic Cummings, who, whilst the UK was in lockdown, drove 260 miles from London to Durham with his wife and child in the car, despite his wife being unwell. And then in April, he was spotted taking a 60-mile round trip from Durham to a nearby town, which he explained as needing to do to test his eyesight. And at the time, I do remember a sense of palpable anger, not least because the government decided to defend his actions, muddying the water of what was and was not allowed. Now, Ian, you, of course, had to ask Christina and John about this. So let's hear what they had to say.
2: I mean, one of the other key points, I suppose, through the year would have been obviously this... um memorable trip that Dominic Cummings made. And do you think that might have had an impact on how other people behaved? There is research on that and there's kind of two
5: effects of the of the Cummings debacle. Now one effect was a a damage to the sense of national unity. We're all in it together. I think that's been irreparably damaged now. The notion we're all in it together, I think people treat that with, with cynicism now. And it goes back to that time that there's one rule for some and, and one rule for others. So for some people, that led to a drop-off in their adherence to distancing uh, and the other regulations. And you know, they were, they were, there's quotes I've seen from people saying, well, well, why should I? But there was another effect as well by people who were not wanting to abandon their, you know, their their, their commitments to to others. And they would say, Well, look, I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna carry on doing this because I don't wanna be like Cummings. I think, you know, that May period, it was a a turning point in a negative sense. I was furious,
3: livid. Like the last thing you need is to have this idea that that we're not in it together. And just to see somebody with COVID get in a a car and drive (laughs) however many hundred miles north to an area which at that point did not have a lot of COVID was just so it just felt so destructive and so stupid to me and then not to even admit it and to try and brazen it out I think I gave a quote to God in the time it just felt like it was taking us all for fools, and I kind of felt like everything they did after that and re- uh, kind of loosening restrictions was kind of a reaction to to what happened with Cummings it was kind of a let's quickly ease restrictions let's get people back out and hopefully they'll forget I mean that's how it felt to me I'm not saying that's that's exactly why it happened but But I I think it was a real turning point. And I don't know whether it was before that or after that that they switched to the
1: kind of messaging of stay alert, whatever that (laughs) That's it for the first part of our review of the year. On Thursday, we'll be diving into vaccines, new variants, and our expectations for what 2021 might hold.
0: I've always been a glass half full person rather than glass half empty, but... It's fundamentally important that these vaccines get out there to people really quickly. And I I would like to see the vaccination programme speeding up so that we can save a lot of lives in January.
1: Until then, stay alert, control the virus, save lives and of course, stay safe.